to The Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Ali Burgess. And I'm Neha Anand. In today's episode, we talk with Dr. Nina Chandrasekharan, or Dr. C, about her experience caring for patients with COVID-19 in the intensive care unit for the ICU. Dr. C completed her internal medicine training at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and is currently doing a pulmonary and critical care fellowship in Detroit, Michigan. It's been wild. The whole year has just been so nuts. I remember being an outpatient clinic with my attending and then my co-fellow and then we were like, there's this weird virus going around in China. So then then when we started seeing them come to the ICU and the numbers just blow up, which was like end of March. I think this day will probably be a day in like my head that stays forever. We had like maybe 10, which is so much for just like pregnant patients. Uh, and they're like young, they're like 20s, early 30s, super young. There's a huge difference between someone who has mild COVID, like a flu symptoms, versus somebody who has severe COVID. Pretty much going out without a mask is like playing Russian relay with your life. And if that's something you're willing to play, then I hope I don't see you in the ICU. The pandemic has, I don't think it's put doctors on a pedestal by any means. I mean, I think that it has kind of humbled us and reminded us that we are needed. So before we jump into that interview, let's talk about some current headlines. Have you heard, Neha, about this scary new strain of the coronavirus from the UK? I did, but what even is a strain? That's a good question. So all viruses undergo small changes in their genetic code over time or mutations that make them slightly different from one another. And a strain is just a slightly different version of a virus. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, mutates pretty regularly and it acquires about one new mutation in its genetic code every two weeks, according to the CDC. But some mutations are silent, while others may slightly change the structure of the virus without significantly changing how it works. A virus changing kind of sounds like a piece of gossip changing over time. If a story changes a little, it doesn't really make a difference. But if the story alters the message, then this could make a big difference in how that piece of gossip spreads. Exactly. So for example, if I were to say that Dr. Fauci contacted Santa Claus about presents arriving on time for Christmas, one change to that story could be Dr. Fauci texted Santa Claus, but that doesn't really alter the main message. And so it's kind of like a silent mutation that doesn't matter. Whereas if I said that Dr. Fauci is Santa Claus. That definitely changes the message and may make that story spread really fast. I would believe Dr. Fauci is Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm sure it's all over like some random niche Instagram or, or Twitter feed right now. So if a virus may not change much, why do we care about these strains? Yeah, so... If a certain strain has an advantage over others, kind of like natural selection, for example, if a strain makes the virus spread more easily, it can become more common. And this is why scientists are looking into this particular virus strain from the UK, because it went from being a rare strain to a common strain very quickly. So tell me more about this UK strain. So a new variant strain was described in the UK 
and has been predicted to be more rapidly transmissible than other strains of SARS-CoV-2. It was first detected actually in September, September 21st, and since then it has become the most common variant in England, representing more than 50% of new cases diagnosed between October and December 13th in the UK. It's actually called the B117 strain of SARS-CoV-2, and it's a version of the virus with 23 mutations, eight of which are in the spike protein that the virus uses to bind to and enter human cells. It also has a specific mutation in the receptor binding domain of the spike protein at position 501. I've heard that this virus is in the UK and is spreading to other places too, but has it been found in the US? Currently, the UK strain hasn't been identified yet in the US, but that comes with the caveat that viruses have only been sequenced from 51,000 of the 17 million cases in the U.S., which is less than 0.1%, making U.S. the 43rd country in the ranking of countries that genetically sequence the virus. In contrast, Australia has sequenced around 60% of cases of the virus, and the U.K. in Britain, they've sequenced more than 7%, according to the New York Times. So it's hard to say because the U.S. hasn't sequenced many of the virus cases. That's really interesting. I didn't realize there was such a big difference in the sequencing numbers. So there's actually been another strain of the virus found in South Africa as well. On December 18th, the South African government announced a new strain that has a similar mutation to the UK's strain, but also has many other mutations. But it's important to know that this strain evolved completely independently from the UK strain. It wasn't that this strain was brought over by someone from the UK. This strain developed completely by itself in South Africa. And it's also thought that this strain spreads more easily because it's been making up most of the second wave of cases that South Africa is now seeing. And interestingly, some vaccine trials, including Oxford's and AstraZeneca's, are taking place in South Africa. So the efficacy of these vaccines on this new strain will be tested. That's great that the, the trials will account for this change in the strain. Yeah, it's a big question that people have of whether the vaccines will still be effective. And right now, experts are saying that these new strains are not likely different enough to make the currently authorized vaccines not work. The vaccines will likely still be effective against these strains because the mutations in these strains do not make the virus that different. So it is possible in the future that we may need to update the coronavirus vaccine to fight against future strains. That's something that we already do now with the flu vaccine. There's a new flu shot each year to protect against different strains of the flu that public health experts predict are going to be the most common for that year. This is interesting because the flu shot targets the protein on the flu that changes each year, which is why we need an updated flu shot for different strains of this virus. But right now, for coronavirus, we don't have enough data to determine if the changes to the coronavirus protein in these new strains will affect immunity from the vaccines. Other implications of strains in the context of COVID is that 
future strains could cause more severe disease or also impact testing or possible treatments. And as all things with this pandemic, everything changes, even the virus every two weeks. So there's a lot to learn. This is something we touched upon with our conversation with Dr. C about how her knowledge about treating patients in the ICU has changed so much over the course of this pandemic. We're excited for you to hear from her and let's get to it. All right. Hi, Dr. C. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. We're going to start off with a question about why you decided to go into pulmonary critical care and why did you become interested in this field of medicine? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me on. So I originally became interested in pulmonary critical care during my third year medical school rotations. Going into med school, I always thought I wanted to do like hemonc or cardio. Those were always kind of like on the back burner in my head. But then when I actually did my internal medicine rotation as a third year, they had, there was this one code, like code blue that was paged overhead. And I still like remember it super clearly to this day. Uh, There were so many people in the room running And this patient was just kind of lying on the bed, just like complete flat line and people were jumping on his chest. One person was yelling out, all right, get the meds, continue compressions, what's on the rhythm. It just seems so organized and so chaotic at the same time. Yet, so the person just seemed so confident in what they were doing. And then later I learned that the, like a week later or two weeks later, I saw that same patient just walking. And I was like, oh my God, you're back from the dead. So (laughs) I just thought it was so cool how, the person really, the person who was running the code really took the pa- the matter into their own hands and made sure this patient was okay and the patient actually had a great outcome. And I, then later I learned that this was a critical care doctor. And so most hospitals, critical care runs the, the code blues. Some hospitals, it's internal medicine residency. Where I did my residency um, in Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, they, the residents ran their codes. But then here where I'm at, at Wayne State in Detroit, the fellows run the codes. So the critical care ICU runs the code. So that kind of, I guess, solidified. All right, so that was a huge, I guess, breakaway into me thinking about critical care and really liking it. And then I was able to do in my fourth year, I did three different critical cares because you have like elective. So I just kept choosing critical care. Wow, that's so many. Yeah. Yeah. I did one in Georgia, one in New York, and then one in Florida. One was a SICU and then the two were MICUs. So I just, when, when you do ICU, it's completely different internal medicine. When you're going to internal medicine, you're managing all of the chronic problems. Like you're at hypertension, diabetes, when you're in the ICU, you're managing everything by systems. So even if there had not, it has nothing to do. If the patient came in with like post-cardiac arrest, you're managing everything from neuro to endo, endocrine even musculoskeletal, cardio, respiratory, GI. It, so it's, it's really cool that you get to manage every single aspect of, of your patient, essentially. And there's a lot of physiology involved in ICU. You can't just put somebody on vent settings and just be, expect them to be okay. You really have to know why you're doing what settings. So I just thought that that was all really cool and that the fourth year definitely solidified it for me. Okay, this is it. So then pulmonary, I was I originally thought I was just going to do critical care. I was like, okay, I'll do medicine and then critical care. The um, pulmonary part, when I was a resident, I think that solidified it for me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go through the pulm field. I really liked just learning about the different pathologies of the lungs, like COPD, asthma, pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary hypertension. They're so prevalent. And I was like, this just, this just fits. This is so cool. 
I, a lot of people look at Palm and they're like, oh, just inhalers. It's so much more than that. I'm just so passionate about Palm. They, they say when, when you interview for pulmonary critical care, they say you go into it for the critical care, but you stay for the pulmonary. And like, I can definitely see that. You get burned out from critical care a lot, like real quick, but the pulmonary part you can do outpatient. So you do create the bonds there and you get to see your patients kind of just do well and soar and it's, it's a great field. So definitely enjoy what I do. Sometimes it's easier than others. So yeah, that's pretty much why pulmonary critical care. For medicine, I I always had a influence growing up because my mom is a doctor, family physician, and she's practicing. So just having that in my background growing up, I always kind of had an inclination that this is what I wanted to do. I would always round with her, like when I was a child, if they didn't have any like babysitters or anything, me and my sister would round with her. My sister's a doctor as well. And then she took us with her to like the hospital and she was on call or her clinic and all her patients that saw her. There was just so much like respect mm-hmm. and her, her just warmth and care for her patients was, was nuts. And I just thought it was just so cool how she could really play the part of like house. I, I remember going to a clinic and then somebody would come in with like all these symptoms and then she would just put it together. And I was like, that's cool. I think like the detective work of, of medicine is something that I realized later on how it was so cool that, you know, there are so many clues and you have to kind of ask the right questions and do the right physical exam to figure out and get the right tests to figure out what the problem is. And it's not really like a linear problem. In most cases, you have to do some digging. And then out of my curiosity, what's the proportion of time that you spend uh, in the ICU versus outpatient for Palm right now? So as pulmonary, there's inpatient and outpatient. So inpatient would be like if you have pulmonary consults in the hospital, we, this year we got bombarded with COVID consults. Um, so there's that, but there's like asthma exacerbations, COPD exacerbations, pneumonias, pneumothoraxes, pleural effusions, pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary hypertension. So there's a bunch of different variety. We can do inpatient uh, for the consults and then we do procedures like bronchoscopies and then lung biopsies. Mm-hmm. So we get to actually be inpatient. Inpatient, we do two months a year. So first year, second year, third year, together that ends up being six months. Outpatient, we do two months also. So together that ends up being a year. And then we have a year of like electives and research and then the year of uh, critical care. Actually a little more than a year of critical care probably because there's nights and there's days. And within critical care, right. there's surgical ICU, neuro ICU. This year, I think my specific year, anybody all across the country who's in my year of pulmonary critical care, a lot more ICU. That's a good segue to the next question. What has your experience been with COVID in the ICU when the pandemic first began? And how has it changed? What is it like now? It's been wild. The whole year has just been so nuts. I remember being an outpatient clinic with my attending and then my co-fellow. And then we were like, there's this weird virus going around in China. And this was like back in February. And little did we know March, because I was in the ICU in March also. We had we had a few cases in our hospital and like everybody was freaking out. They're like, oh my God. At one point there was like 30 people for the first patient in the hospital, there were 30 people exposed. So then 30 people had to like go home and they started pulling us. Then the next day we got like a schedule change of you can't leave. You need to, you might have to cover in, in case something happens. Everybody was treating it like uh, like Ebola or something crazy. They would all wear these like suits, double glove, mm-hmm. facial after facial, try to just stay away. 
keep this patient in like the corner. It was crazy. So then, then when we started seeing them come to the ICU and the numbers just blow up, which was like end of March, they called me early from like my home staycation. I remember. And then I went, I think this day it will probably be a day in like my head that stays forever. It was like end of March and it was my, I had like my vacation time then. So I just ended up staying and doing nothing, so, but they called me back early anyway. So I went and, and there was, I think it was like end of March. There was like a night. And then I went to, we had to cover three different hospitals. So it's like a large system type thing. So I went between two that night and the first night there were, we had like 180 patients, I think like that. And then so I was with my co-fellow, it was only two fellows on night. And then so I was with my co-fellow and then we were just like walking room to room, 70% oxygen type, 60% oxygen type, 78, 80, 82. And then I was like, oh my God, people are going to die. <laughs> and then 18 people ended up dying in one of the hospitals and then like 20 something in the other hospitals. It's like a night of like 40 deaths. And it was just crazy. We were just calling like families left and right. And there wasn't really anything you can do for them because the minute you intubate a COVID patient, it it's really hard to prevent multi-organ failure. Just the intubation process in general, they're really, they're a lot harder to intubate than a normal person. Their airway is a lot more swollen and their time to apnea is a lot low, lot less compared, diminished compared to like a normal person. So if a normal person has at least like 45 seconds to one minute, you probably have like 15 to 20 seconds to get that tube into their trachea and start then and start bagging them or oxygenating them or they're going to crump and by crump i mean i've seen this so many times so anesthesia will be intubating we only had anesthesia intubate mm-hmm. they had like peppers and their own like procedure we had the intubation boxes to like air to keep the aerosolization out so if they would try to intubate and like maybe couldn't get it or couldn't see a good view to pass the scope you could see the heart rate start going down you're like oh my god the patient's gonna code there were a few instances where they did code just from the intubation itself which in a normal person, you can take like at least 45 seconds. Cause when I intubate, I don't get, if I need like a little longer as in like a minute, I can I at least know I have safely a minute. And then if I need to bag them to get their saturations up, we can do that. But with COVID you can't, so it's crazy. Wow. It, was, it changed a lot. There were just so many patients, so many sick patients. When they all first came in every day, there was a new email like, okay, give them steroids next day. Don't give them steroids. First day, give them hydroxychloroquine. Like a month later, don't give them hydroxychloroquine. Intubate everybody. And then the next, and then when, when we were intubating everyone, which was for a good like two months, it was like figuring out their vent settings, trying to figure out how to oxygenate them because they would just go downhill so quickly. And you could spend like one, whole, like a night or like eight hours in just one room and still not get their sat above 90%. Not that you had that time because you have to run around, but it was, it was definitely crazy. We stopped when we stopped the intubation finally. And like, I think, I guess like mid April, they were starting to sway away from intubating. And then by like May, we were, we weren't into, or we were trying to avoid intubations. That's when we saw like better outcomes, which is crazy. We were doing like self-proning, steroids, high flows. That sounds very intense with so many patients coming in and things changing all the time for, you know, how you have to treat people. I think what would be helpful for people listening to understand is why COVID patients need to go to the ICU. Yeah. So for a patient to come to us, you have to be really sick. <laughs> That's just medicine in general. So we, as an ICU, we have a criteria of you either need to be a BiPAP or high flow. So before we only started doing BiPAP in like August or like September, I think the email came out. 
we weren't doing BiPAP before because it was a high risk of aerosolization. But the way that we are allowing for BiPAP is BiPAP on the vent. So we have a Puritan Bennett 840, which is a mechanical ventilator. And through that, we allow a BiPAP mask because it's still a one-way, um, it's still like a one-way circuit. So there's no risk of aerosolization rather than if it were a normal BiPAP, there would be risk. So once we allowed for that, that took away the lot, that took a lot of, a lot of, I guess, stress on just having to get the patient up with their oxygen sats and match their risk, their, their flow of breathing with just normal nasal cannula. Cause we ran out of high flows. Even now this week, like yesterday night when I was on, there's no more high flows. So we've been doing like non, we've been doing 15 liters non-rebreather in addition to like this bubbler, which is 15 liters, just to give them, just to match their flow. Because when somebody has COVID, they're like, their lungs are just filled with, with stuff essentially. That's where you can see the ground glass opacities. It's a cytokine storm that just releases, that makes the vas that increases vascular permeability just in the lungs itself, the alveoli, and then they're filled with stuff and it's hard for them to breathe in and out. So then they, they become tachypnic because they're trying to match their, they're trying to keep up a minute ventilation to just oxygenate their body. So because of that, they get really tachypnic. And then you try to match their tachypnia with the flow rate, which is why they use high flow, 60 liters, 50 liters. So that's why we were, we're doing like 15 liters and 15 liters with hundred percent on hundred percent. So yeah, if you're on BiPAP, you'll come to us. If you're on high flow, you'll come to us. If you are intubated, you'll come to us. Those are literally our only three criteria for COVID. Pretty much because everybody else, we, we just don't have room. We don't have room. We don't have staff. We don't have equipment. We don't have supplies. So those are pretty much how you come to us. And then when you do come to us, our treatments, because I admitted a few yesterday, which is actually interesting too, because I did um, end up admitting somebody who got the polyclonal antibody, mm -hmm. avalanumab as outpatient and still end up getting sick because they, they still end up coming in and being really sick. I, I hadn't seen anybody on that yet. I didn't even know that places were getting it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, we do steroids like upfront Decadron because of the recovery trial. So we do dexamethasone, six milligrams for 10 days. That's something that we definitely do. And then we, a lot of these people, because they're so sick when they come to us, we'll, we'll um, do a respiratory culture. And if their sputum is growing anything, they will add antibiotics like upfront pretty quickly. Sometimes even right after we get the sputum culture, if they're immunocompromised, like from a nursing home or something, we'll add on broad spectrum antibiotics. If they have a trach, we'll add, we'll add that on. Sometimes we'll do community-acquired pneumonia treatment. So like rosafin, azithro, or doxycycline, we'll add those on for people in the community. Mm -hmm. So we'll do antibiotic coverage. We'll do uh, dex decadron. We do do remdesivir. We're still pretty big on remdesivir, even though the WHO solidarity trial didn't show any evidence in it, but the ACC trial, the first trial that did come out, did show pretty good evidence in it. I personally believe remdesivir to COVID is like Tamiflu to influenza. It shortens the duration. It doesn't change mortality, but it does shorten the duration. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've seen it work, I guess. Maybe I'm jaded, but <laughs> I feel like it works. So we do that. We used to do like the vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, melatonin, but now we don't as much just because, I don't know, it kind of fell off. Mm -hmm. Those are like the big things that we do do that with the proven like effects, I guess. Sometimes we'll do inhaled nitric oxide if they're really sick on the vent. There's not too much data on that, but we do do that. Oh, for so we also have a cancer clinic here and bone marrow transplant. So all the leukemia patients, the bone marrow transplant patients, the GVHD, Graffer's host disease, we give them convalescent plasma because they can't 
our, our thought essentially is that they can't mount their own immune response. Mm -hmm. So then we're giving them the convalescent plasma to help mount an immune response. But to normal people, we don't really always do convalescent plasma because once again, the data is very limited on that and it's hard to come by. Wow. But for our BMT, they get it all the time. Mm. It's so interesting to hear how the course of treatment and what you've learned about treating patients since March or even February has, has changed. And you, you talked a, a bit about some complications, like you said, there's a chance for multi-organ failure, you treat for pneumonia. What other types of complications have you, you seen? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So from the pulmonary standpoint, I what's kind of cool is I get to see these patients as an outpatient. So I get to follow them on the outpatient setting, like we got post-COVID-19, post-COVID-19, we get a lot of them. In the hospital, what I do see is we see a lot of thromboembolism and coagulopathy. So COVID-associated coagulopathy, we see a lot of, like they just clot up these lines, which is so annoying for me because if I put in like an arterial line and then they clot that or like a hemodialysis line, there was one night I had to put three lines, three hemodialysis lines in this patient because they kept clotting the clotting mm -hmm. line. So it was kind of like a DIC picture. We put them on heparin drip to thin their blood. So hopefully they won't clot, but they still clot. So then you're just like, oh my God. So yeah, there's COVID-associated coagulopathy, which is kind of like a DIC picture, which is pretty well studied now, I'd say. There's a lot of papers on it from the hemox, from the hematology standpoint, in addition to the ICU standpoint. So I see that PEs, because they are so coagulable, we do end up seeing a lot of that. And a lot of it, we kind of just diagnose the PEs kind of based on their clinical picture without even getting a CT because they're usually so unstable. We don't give TPA, but we do do heparin drip and Lovenox to hopefully prevent and thoughts too. We see that we see ARDS, severe ARDS from COVID-19 pneumonia, which is a given. And then we do see, which is really interesting and has been pretty studied now too, is COVID-associated aspergillosis. So for some reason, I don't know if it's the dexamethasone or the fact the decadron or, or their, you know, their immune system just get kind of suppressed from the virus itself, but we're seeing a lot and a lot more reports of aspergillosis, so fungal infections, mm -hmm. specifically aspergillosis. So what we do is if we have a patient that's just been like kind of on the vent for 10 days and they're just kind of not getting better and they're still having like high oxygen requirements, we'll, we'll get like a beta deglucan, an aspergillus serum antigen and galactomannan. And then we'll see if any of those are positive, we'll start treating with boriconazole. Mm. And it's been pretty, there's, there's a lot of reports now about it. There's a good paper in like on Medscape, a good article about what not to miss. And that was on there. So we definitely do see that. Even yesterday I had like four patients on boriconazole for this reason, they were COVID positive. So we see that other thing that we do see, we see a lot of barotrauma in the lungs and subcutaneous emphysema, air in the like chest and pneumothoraxes. And that has to do with, like I was saying in the beginning, you can't just, not one size fits all. You can't put somebody on the ventilator with like 100% and peep of 20 and not expect to pop along. Someone's gonna pop along, especially if they have underlying lung disease, comorbidities, like COPD, a large bleb that's, they just have a large bleb because of emphysema. If the higher pressure you put, you're gonna change the gradient between the intrathoracic pressure and then the, the pressure that you're putting into the alveoli. So when that changes, drastically, you can pop along and then you get like pneumos because of that. So there's, there's a lot of different interesting things that we've seen, but those are like, I would say the main things that like I kind of deal with on a daily basis for post COVID. What I've been seeing is fibrosis, not very common. Thank God, because fibrosis is end stage. You need a transplant mm. to fix that. So we don't see it too much. I've seen it like maybe four or five times, a few times. I've definitely seen it. 
So we've seen fibrosis, we see bronchiolitis obliterans, which is a disease of the smaller airways. So we see that just inflammation in the small airways. Um, we see post-COVID cough, which is actually really interesting. And it's kind of like you hear coughing and it's like, oh, it's just a cough. But it's, it's like pretty severe. These people are cough, coughing for like days. We see reactive airway disease, which is kind of just like wheezing and cough, kind of like a variant of asthma. And then pneumonitis. So we've just been seeing like CT scans with the same findings as with the ground glass opacities, inflammation, and kind of just not getting better. So like I've had patients on steroids now for maybe six months, and this is post COVID. Like they've been, they were discharged back in April and they're still on steroids and it's, it's December now. And it's because they're just not getting better. We haven't tried yet steroid sparing agents on these people because none of it's been studied. There's no real like post COVID pulmonary studies yet. You're in a specialty that both treats the patients in the ICU and then, you know, it follows up afterwards to see how things are going. So you kind of see both sides of the coin and how it's impacting these patients six months later. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. It's actually really cool. I love that part. Right. Oh, other thing I forgot to mention with treatments is ECMO. We're really big on it. We're an ECMO center here. So we put a lot of patients on ECMO. And can you, can you describe for people who don't know what ECMO is and like why a patient might need it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Essentially, it's just an artificial lung, heart and lungs or just lungs outside your body. So when your lungs are so sick and they just can't do their job, for example, COVID lungs that are filled with stuff, you essentially have a perfusionist or like an oxygenator outside your body that's giving oxygen back to your body. Essentially, the job of the lungs is oxygenation and ventilation, two big things. Mm -hmm. So if you, and when we, the way the heart goes, heart takes deoxygenated blood to the lungs, gets the oxygen, and then takes it back to the body. So what the oxygenator or the ECMO does is you have a big cannula that's taking out the deoxygenated blood. It's going into an oxygenator, and then it's coming back into a big, the, into a big vein as well. So that's why they cannulate and then they do that. So we've had, we had patients on that, and then they'll be on it for like a month, maybe two months, and then they, they'll more than likely have a trach as well. So they'll, they'll be on ECMO, they'll be on a trach, and then we hopefully hope to decannulate them with a trach and to decannulate them with their ECMO catheters. But ECMO has good, has been having a lot of good press, I guess, for COVID. So mm -hmm. definitely an option. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, but I guess points you in the direction that that patient is very, very sick. Oh, yeah. We also had a lot of um, pregnant patients actually with COVID, which is pretty interesting. You can tell us more about that. Yeah. So pregnancy in general, it takes a toll on your body. You're going to be more tachypnic than a normal person because progesterone is more increased. And that's, that's a hormone in the body that does cause just tachypnia in general because of the vasodilation. So that on top of something in your lungs is not good, especially when you have a baby that's pushing on your diaphragm. So then all of that decreases your functional residual capacity because you don't have much volume in your lungs. You have your diaphragm being pushed up and then your lungs are filled with stuff. So you're going to be breathing hard to oxygenate essentially. So that's when we get consulted because we, we have an OB unit in our hospital. So we've been getting con or not, not now, but I, for some weird reason between like August and October, I think we were consulted a lot. We had like maybe 10, which is so much for just like pregnant patients. Yeah. Um, and they're like young, they're like 20s, early 30s, super young. I, we don't know why, like, is this strain related or what, or maybe just more people were pregnant. Mm -hmm. So they fare 
they fit, they're they're different because you're super nervous, super nervous to take care of them. When they come into our ICU, we have we jointly manage them with OB. So we put them on fetal heart rate tracing, where they they'll, so they'll have like stickers um, on their belly, and then there will be like a a TV kind of just monitoring the fetus, the heart rate. And then if they go through decelerations or um, like accelerations, then we tell OB we're like, oh, that doesn't look right. <laughs> That's sounding off. And then um, they'll come. And then if it's too high sustained, then it has to be emergency section. So anybody that comes in who's pregnant COVID, they get the OB will have them fill out a form saying emergency section if needed. There were, we had to do, we had to have a few done because of that. And, and then ventilator. So we try to avoid mechanical intubation as much as possible on these pregnant patients, because the minute you intubate them, their baby suffers. But at the same time, if you don't intubate them and they lose oxygenation, they're a higher oxygenation goal than a normal person. A normal person with COVID, we're okay with 88%. With them, we're like 91% because they need to not only oxygenate cells, but the baby as well. So we, we prefer higher oxygenation goals in them. Once they start dropping, we do get a lot, we do get worried and nervous and we talk to them and address goals with their, with themselves and then with their significant other or family, whatever, that if, if we need to intubate them, we'll intubate them and do a C-section at the same time, take out the baby, um, intubate them. So we did have to do that a few cases actually. And yeah, you kind of raise a good point about, you know, talking to the family members. Has that been affected at your hospital in terms of the number of visitors and, and how you interact with patients that may not have their loved ones allowed to be by their side? Yeah, for sure. I, that's definitely one of the hardest parts, I would say, of being in the COVID ICU in general. And any COVID healthcare worker can attest. You're just like on the other side and you're talking to somebody through the phone or like, I don't know, like there's like FaceTime and you're telling them about their loved one, which is just nuts. We've had instances where like somebody had both their parents. This is recently, like, I don't know, maybe yesterday. Both the patient's parents were in the hospital. It was like a husband and wife. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's just so horrible. And then like, you have to tell, you have to call up the fam- the patient, patient's family member and tell them, your loved one is in the hospital and to them they don't really know much except what they see in the news and like it's either you're a believer or you're you think this is a death sentence so that's crazy it's crazy it's it's hard especially like when they are actively dying so we've had we've also had many instances where they're like on 100 percent oxygen 18 of peep they're paralyzed they're prone meaning they're on their stomach they're on like crrt um, or dialysis, and then you're you're just like, well, we we we're do, we've done everything we can. How do you say this is goodbye to your family member when they're on like the other side, just crying, like, don't give up, don't give up. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that sounds awful, and especially when a lot of these patients that you may be seeing were healthy before this. Yeah. And or had very limited, you know, comorbidities, and having to explain to someone that that they're suffering this much. Yeah, for sure. I think like in April, because we were doing it so much, it was just so robotic. Like we have reached maximal medical therapy. Like it was just so robotic, which is sad to say, but if you're on a phone call, like, I don't know, 10 times a day and you have so many sick patients to take care of, you can be attached. Wow. Well, this year has simply been very intense and in so many ways. And I think one potential hopeful thing that's come out recently is the vaccine. And you told us you got the vaccine recently. So 
Could you tell us a little bit more about that experience and what it was like? Yeah. So I actually just got the vaccine this morning at 10, 10 oh Yeah. So I, I was after my night shift, instead of staying in the call room and just going downstairs, I came home, but I probably should have just stayed. Anyway, so I went to get the vaccine. It, it was an interesting process. They take down your information, like your NPI number, your employee ID, your information, like your phone number and your email address. Then they, there's three different stations. So you enter and they register you. Then they put you to the back where they're administering the vaccines. There's different little booths. So you sit down, they ask you if you had any reactions or, and then they clean your, your, they ask you which arm, then they clean it. And then they kind of just like administer it to you. It doesn't hurt. Like when you're getting it, it's definitely sore after. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely like sore. Like right now it's kind of sore. Uh, it was sore. I think it will be more sore tomorrow from what I heard from my friends. But then by third day, you're fine. Like completely fine. I have not been limited in anything I can do. Then they, they monitor you. So the third station is called like the monitor station. They keep you for at least 20 minutes. And then you can stay longer if you feel like you need to. There's a station for like water, which is really nice. And then they tell you to like, if you want to like eat before you should, so you're not doing like an empty stomach or get that vasovagal reaction like that one nurse had on them. TV where she passed out. So it's, it's cool. It's, it's a different experience because they don't do the flu shot. They don't monitor you. And then they give you like a, like a vaccination card with like your batch number and then when to come back. So mine will be January 11th. You can't miss that. I definitely think it's hope and that's so needed. There's so it's crazy. The new strain that the UK has just been talking about in, yeah. um, and with their spike protein, but I guess or what they're saying is that the vaccine is still susceptible or at least to a degree where it won't cause a severe COVID infection, which is huge because there's a huge difference between someone who has mild COVID, like a flu symptoms versus somebody who has severe COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty biased and jaded because that's what I see. Yeah, you so, see here in the ICU. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you've seen the worst of the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like when I talk about it with like my mom or like my sister or my husband, even, cause they're all um, in medicine too. My husband's internal medicine, my sister's family and my mom's family. They see the different side of it. They're seeing like patients from a clinic or like patients that call them that are just like mildly sick. My husband sees patients on the floor, which is pretty, pretty sick too, but not as sick. So when they come to me, they have to be pretty sick. So I'm just hopeful. I'm really hopeful for no more severe, severe infections. Yeah, it's it's exciting. I mean, especially the the speed at which a vaccine has been able to be tested and proven safe and effective this far. It's exciting. And especially when like, you know, there's so much data about the new strain at this time too. At least there's the pros of the vaccine being administered now in the US. So I have a question about kind of how the pandemic has impacted your perception of the role of a physician. Obviously, you've been a doctor for a while before the pandemic, but I think this is like the first time that physicians have been in the limelight in the media for this reason. And I don't know if if you've had any kind of revelations about what it means to be a doctor in this time. Yeah, I actually never thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) You're living life. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because this is just what I do. But you're right. It's, it's been a lot in the media. I think I see it more when I'm on social media. I think that's like kind of when it hits more because you see all these posts from like doctors and big people and you're just like, oh, wow. You're like in a bubble when you're in the hospital. You're like just focused on taking care of your patients, like making sure someone doesn't die. Talk to the family. You have like a checklist in your head. 
And so you're kind of in a bubble, but then I guess when you leave the hospitals, when you, you're open up, like you can see, you go on Insta and see people, I don't know, partying or like out and about people protesting like, oh, all right, people who aren't wearing masks. Sometimes in my building too, I'm like, oh, wear your mask. (laughs) So you see it more when you're out of the hospital. I think being a physician and even the future to come, we need doctors. It's huge. I, if anything, this pandemic has shown the need for, for doctors, whether it's to disprove weird people who don't believe in this or just to take care of people. COVID is not essentially leaving us. There are still going to be post-COVID sim- symptoms, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. There's going to be fatigue. There's going to be weakness. There's going to be people who have been in hospital for days and then rehab who need the help, the the support people who have pulmonary complications, like I just explained, people who have who will have myocarditis. That's another big one that we do refer to cardiology if we can't find anything in the lungs. The number one reason for shortness of breath is either your heart or your lungs. So they're always referred to us or cardio. And then if we can't find anything, then we'll get an echo and then refer to cardiology. Because myocarditis has been a very big thing, actually. I did admit a few, like that patient, I mean, that, that basketball player from University of Florida, he collapsed and he's not the only one. There are many people. So it's, there's going to be a long, a lot of long-term complications and it just showed the need for physicians, especially to treat these people. And I would even say that I would even go as far as saying that a need for the subspecialties because, and I noticed this, I think, I don't remember when, but I was talking to like my co-fellows about this. You can see a difference between patients who know who are used to the event. Cause like back in March and April, it was just us as pulmonary critical care doing like vents and ICUs, but it was too much for us. I mean, we're only 21 of us, right? Fellow-wise, we're only 21. So then we had to pull like GI, hemon, cardio, rheumatology, endo. So we were like reaching out to all these different um, specialties to come help. And they did, of course, but they're not trained on the ventilator. So then if something happens, it's not like if the gas of an ABG comes back when you're checking it and like the CO2 is like 90 and like maybe they, someone might not know to go up on like the respiratory rate or tidal volume to fix, to help fix that or see what the cause is, maybe switch the ventilator setting. And then that can lead to barotrauma that can lead to different complications in itself. So I definitely think that there's a need for ICU doctors out there as well and pulmonary to be trained to help these patients just in general. The pandemic has, I don't think it's put doctors on pedestal by any means. I mean, I think that it has kind of humbled us and reminded us that we are needed. And especially when a lot is still being figured out in many diseases and, and COVID is, is an example of that. We're all kind of learning about it and, and looking at the data together and like relaying that information to the public, I think is, is a critical piece because you know the misinformation component and, and relying on public health measures to get us through has been really important. And it really is, it's important to convey the, the data and the messages so that everyone is on the same page. It's so actually awesome that you say that because you're so right. <laughs> even, even interpreting these studies, like you, right? one can read them and be like, oh my God, 86% of people are like 99.8% of people did well or didn't die. Like, okay, but did you read it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Medical misinformation and people who just can't read papers. It's big. And honestly, there are even doctors out there who can't like well-known, renowned people because they don't teach you these in medical school. Mm-hmm. You learn this through yourself if you want, if you care, 
or if you were to do like MPH, like you guys. And I think that that's a big thing for medical schools that they should really teach. Because if you implement it young or like early on, then you're used to it. So by the time you guys get into med school, you're reading papers and understanding them. By the time you're in residency, you guys are like pretty much experts at it. And you can pick apart a paper. But in residency, they, they try to, I guess, with like the, you know, journal clubs here and there. And in fellowship, we have our own journal clubs. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like I wasn't that that great at it I learned I'm learning through my you know fellowship and they have like the basic stuff on your steps step one step two like the biostats that part and step three as well it's pretty big on it but it's not clinically big like there's there's differences I think and I think that maybe medical school should add in a public health sector yeah it's definitely been interesting doing this MPH year and going into so much more depth in terms of what statistics mean and public health interventions and, and medical treatments, how to actually, you know, analyze their effects. So yeah, I think it's a huge issue of not only doctors, but the general public getting all this new information about the, the pandemic every day. And so I, I guess as we're starting to wrap up, our, our last question to you would be, is there anything that as a healthcare worker, seeing all these very sick patients and, you know, having worked really hard during this pandemic that you want the public to know or take away from your experiences? I would say it's real. That's like the biggest message. It's real and it can, it can be really bad. You can play pretty much going out without a mask is like playing Russian relay with your life. And if that's something you're willing to play, then I hope I don't see you in ICU. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. It's scary. But I think having that that dose of reality is really important because a lot of times, you know, we don't get that. We don't talk to talk to doctors who are seeing those severe patients and we're kind of getting the spectrum. But I think, you know, focusing on the severe patients and, and seeing that side of the coin is really important. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm.